title of this talk is The Moment Itself. So our practice is a practice of coming to the moment. The moment is where we find the heart. Outside the moment, we lose the heart. The moment is where we find happiness of heart, true happiness in the moment. The practice of meditation is a practice of coming to the moment, coming to the heart. When the Buddha had his insight to that time when he was a child, when he was sitting under the rose apple tree, those qualities that he recollected, that he embodied as a child, those qualities of ease, internal pleasure, are qualities that in meditation and in life, we seek to cultivate ease, pleasure, this quality of being in rhythm, being in tune, being in tune, Meditation is a practice of coming into tune, being in tune, as I've been talking about. So these jhana qualities that were developing, uh, these qualities of concentration of jhana, are qualities that are They're the qualities that we embody when we're in tune. They're the qualities that we embody that we're in when we're in tune. So they're essential uh, to this process of coming into the moment, to coming to the moment and coming to the heart, being in tune. We want to develop these qualities, these qualities of in-tunedness. The Buddha said this is the path to awakening. The path to awakening. So it's not really so much about developing ease and pleasure. It's about being in tune. When you're in tune, you embody these qualities. He realized as a child he was in tune. Kids are in tune. You know, it's like you get you really start to get out of tune when you become an adolescent because you lose the body because that's when the mind starts to cling. The mind starts to cling when it gets strong, when it's an adolescent, and you lose the body and you lose your in-tunedness. And we get out of tune and dissonant and distorted. So... These qualities of jhana uh, that we're seeking to develop uh, are the qualities that we uh, learn to embody so that we can reach the goal. They're not the goal. They're not the goal. You know, they're the qualities that we embody so that we can reach the goal. You know, we cultivate these qualities through mindfulness of breathing. Uh, you know, which is what we're doing here and cultivating these qualities. Uh, you know, 
these qualities, as I've talked about, about being in tune, are developed through what we're doing in concentration and making effort, but you know, there's no concentration, as the Buddha said, without wisdom. So ultimately, our ability to be in tune is really a function of wisdom. I mean, it's a function of the effort that we're making to develop concentration, but it's a function of wisdom as well. And ultimately, wisdom is what's going to lead us to being in tune. Mindfulness of breathing, of course, is the practice that we're working with here. Uh, you know, retreats like this uh, are a testament to uh, one of the uh, one of the problems. Trying to think of a more genteel way of putting it, uh, that the teaching of the Buddha has run into in the West, where uh, the teachings really brought here in a, in a retreat format. So we kind of stumble into this uh, on a retreat like this. You know, as a teacher, I think I've done a fairly good job of uh, uh, offering the full picture. You know, but the full picture doesn't get offered so much on a retreat. Uh, so the full picture includes what comes before the retreat, what comes before mindfulness of breathing, which is the development of parami, the development of your skillful qualities, beginning with generosity and virtue. So uh, in order to uh, begin to connect to the heart, we practice generosity to bring ourselves in tune by practicing generosity, we start to connect to the heart. And uh, we develop the precepts and skillful action in the service of coming to the heart and getting in tune. Uh, so if uh, our parami is compromised, if we are in following the precepts, uh, the, we're, you know, we're going to be in a dissonant state and we're going to be blocked off from the heart and we're not going to be able to really get very far in terms of developing jhana in the Buddhist concentration, which is, which is a concentration that's ultimately informed by our innate wisdom. I would see this, you know, I see this as a teacher over the years, uh, uh, how, you know, one's parami uh, has a profound effect on one's capacity to develop concentration. Everybody can develop your parami, you know. You can develop your parami, but you have to, you have to, you know, if you want to develop concentration. You know, if, if your parami isn't developed, if our parami isn't developed, if we haven't developed, uh, you know, if, 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 particularly if we're doing things that are unskillful, you know, concentration is really not going to develop that far. At least not jhana, not the Buddhist kind. You can develop certain kinds of concentration. They teach concentration to to soldiers, you know, I mean, you, you can develop certain kinds of concentration, but not the kind of concentration that I'm going to describe tonight. I remember years and years ago, I had a Burmese student, a young fellow, uh, like many uh, young people who grew up in, uh, in Theravada Buddhist countries like Burma, Myanmar, Thailand, Sri Lanka, he didn't learn meditation you know, as, as, as a young man. 
you know, but he learned parami. You know, they didn't, they weren't teaching him meditation, but they were teaching him generosity and virtue. Uh, so, you know, it was always weird for me, you know, when I worked with, you know, Burmese students or Sri Lankan students, because, you know, I, I feel like I'm teaching you guys meditation. You know, you've been living all your life in, in Rangoon, and now I'm, I'm the first one to teach you meditation, this guy from Long Island. This is weird. Uh, so I remember I was teaching this one guy, and some of you may have even remembered him, uh, was a Burmese student, and... Uh, uh, he never learned meditation. He was here, he was in his young 20s, and the guy just was just, I mean, after a few months, he was like, by far, the most advanced student I had ever seen. I mean, he was just like doing stuff, you know, he was, you know, he was running circles around me in terms of his ability, you know, to develop concentration. And I said, man, how do you, he goes, in a very self-effacing way, he said, you know, like most of these people here, I have, I have, unlike most of these people here, I have really good parami. You know, it's like I developed, you know, ethical conduct, you know, living in Burma, you know? You know, he was, you know, I mean, I think he felt bad for the, the rest of the folks, like myself, you know, who were trying to uh, change our profligate ways, but, you know, our capacity to develop concentration was severely impaired by that. Because it's a practice of the heart. It's a practice of the heart. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these jhana qualities. Actually, I'm going to talk about the jhanas. You know, generally, we're not so concerned with attaining levels of jhana, first jhana, second jhana. Uh, Tanisa Rubiku said uh, his teacher, Ajahn Fuang, would never talk about first jhana, second jhana. He talked about the jhana qualities. Tanisar Bhikkhu wrote that great article called Jhana Not by the Numbers. So we, we teach the development of the jhana qualities, uh, but the Buddha's description of the jhanas, the first jhana and the second jhana, is instruct, it, it's instructive in helping us understand the practice for developing these qualities, what these qualities comprise. The metaphors the Buddha uses in describing the jhanas, which I've always used over the years in teaching concentration practice, I think are very useful for helping us develop our understanding and our practice. So I'm going to kind of go through these in tonight's uh, teaching. So hopefully this won't be too tedious as I read. Uh, first jhana, there is the case where a monk or a layperson uh, quite withdrawing from sensuality, withdrawing from unskillful qualities, uh, enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Just as if, and this is really, this is the metaphor the Buddha uses to describe what that process looks like uh, as we're developing this first stage of concentration practice. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice were to pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip even so, the monk permeates, suffuses, and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. So, 
it's really a great description of uh, this process that we're engaging in in the meditation, particularly in what we call step three, uh, this process of like, I, you know, kind of take some liberties with the translation and say, we're massaging the body, just like the bathman's apprentice kneading the bath powder and sprinkling it with the water in order to, to make uh, the bath powder, sprinkling the powder with water, we're massaging the body throughout the body we're using our mindfulness to massage the body to cultivate uh, this flow of energy that the teachings refer to as rapture here, PT energy and this quality of pleasure throughout the body. We're giving this body a good massage. So uh, uh, it's a very proactive process. It's a very proactive process. So you know, to bring it down to our, our humble uh, terms, you know, in step three, you know, this, this very active, proactive process of uh, bringing our mindfulness into all the body, the whole body, so that eventually we permeate the whole body with rapture and pleasure. So this is where, this is, requires effort. So in the cultivation of concentration, this is what the effort, you know, this, at this level, you know, we're putting in a good amount of effort. This is where the effort really is made. Now, of course, the effort isn't made in squeezing your legs with your hands. You know, the effort is made in fabricating, right? Directed thought and evaluation, as the Buddha describes it. Directed and thought and fabrication. Directed thought and fabrication Directed thought and evaluation is the fabrication that you're using. So basically, the thinking that you're doing is what the effort is applied toward. So you're making an effort to think, all right, I'm going to bring my mindfulness to the thigh, and I'm going to feel the thigh and move my attention into the thigh and really try to get internally there and see if I can feel the bone and the muscles and the blood vessels. Do I feel, as directed thought, do I feel that quality of ease there? Where do I feel it? Do I feel it in the thigh? What does that feel like in the thigh? So, you know, that's this massaging, uh, this effort that we put into massaging is in the service of developing this physical quality of ease or rapture, PT. and that's a physical quality, something you feel in the body, it's a tingling, whatever, however you feel it, and that gives rise to the mental uh, impression of pleasure, the mental impression of pleasure. So, you know, this, these qualities are essential for us in our effort to come to the body, to develop an abiding where the mind will want to stay uh, to begin this process of uh, bringing the body into tune so there's a smooth flow of energy in the body. So there's a smooth flow of pleasant energy throughout the body. So, you know, the body is contracted and tight and stiff uh, and we're bringing this uh, mindfulness to the body so that uh, the body 
uh, is uh, uh, in tune in terms of the quality of energy in the body. It's flowing, it's flowing, we're in a flow, we're in a flow. quite withdrawn from sensuality, so we're not engaging in external sense pleasures, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, he's talking about the hindrances, rapture and pleasure accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. So there's a lot of fabrication going on in this stage of meditation practice. And the second jhana, Furthermore, with the stilling of directed thought and evaluation, he enters and remains in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of composure, unification of awareness, free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. He permeates and pervades, suffuses this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of composure. Here the metaphor is as follows. Just, as like, just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from the east, west, north, or south, and with the skies periodically supplying abundant showers so that the cool fount of water welling up from within the lake would permeate and pervade, suffuse it, and fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters, even so the monk permeates and pervades, suffuses, and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from composure. So in the second jhana, there's a stilling of fabrication. There's a stilling of directed thought and evaluation. So we're not fabricating. You know, if you were at the pure second jhana, you wouldn't be fabricating much or hardly at all. But we, you know, we may be in a stage where we're fabricating less, which means like we're making less effort. We're making less effort. So, you know, if you want to know if your concentration is getting stronger, you, you'd be making less effort. You know, if you're making more effort, your concentration's not getting stronger. I mean, it could be getting stronger, but to get to the next level of, of concentration, you're making less effort. You're making less effort. So instead of that massaging that we're going on, is going on, there's the breath, and the breath is easeful, of course, and feels good, and it's just fueling the body with energy. And you're not really doing anything. You know, it's just like the spring at the bottom of the lake filling the lake with fresh water. So uh, at this stage of the meditation, there's less fabrication, less doing, less doing. The system is self-sustaining at that point. You know, effort, if it's applied skillfully and uh, in the service of connecting to your wisdom and being in tune, uh, gradually there's this quality of, uh, of uh, the system, you know, doesn't need your input anymore. Uh, the energy's just flowing. You hit a, like a critical mass or a tipping point and energy is not only just flowing, it's actually increasing. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to do anything. The lake, the spring at the bottom of the lake is just filling the lake with fresh water. So there's a quality of effortlessness. Effortlessness that's happening. You know, so so you know, it's, it's, it's a deeper state of concentration because it's not interfered with by 
All right, let me feel the knee. All right, how does the knee feel? Let me massage the calf and all of that. You know, that's, that's all stilled. And, you know, the, you know, the organism uh, is just a flow of this energy and it's sustaining itself. It's effortless. It's effortless. Uh, so you're aware of that, but your awareness is less obscured. It's not obscured by directed thought and evaluation. The system is sustaining itself. It's sustaining itself. It's, it's in tune. It doesn't need your input anymore. It's in tune. It's self, you know, that's how it's sort of meant to be. It's how it's meant to be. It's gotten so out of tune. Once you bring it back into tune, it'll self-sustain itself and the energy uh, will, uh, will just continue to flow. So at this point, as the Buddha says, uh, rapture and pleasure born of composure. The mind is composed. The mind is composed. The mind isn't, you know, let me do this, let me do that. Let me uh, you know, see how the body feels. The mind is just composed. There's unification of awareness, which means your awareness is, is right on breath and body. And you don't need to do anything to keep it there. It's just staying right there. It's just staying right there. So it's a quality uh, of effortlessness and the energy is consistent, more refined, and there's just a flow. So there's less dissonance, there's less dissonance. The awareness is free from fabrication. The mind is composed. The awareness is unified and, and not obscured by fabrication. I mean, there's a little bit of that right now, right? I mean, if you've been practicing over the last five days, like the way that you guys have, I mean, there's some, so there's some flow of energy, right? You feel that. You don't have to do anything, right? You feel that. Everybody feel that a little bit, right? There's some of that flow that's effortless. You're not doing anything, you know? I mean, it's, it's stronger than it was on Thursday morning before you got here, you know, or on the train, because you've put a lot of work into the system to develop the energy flow, and it's begun to start to self-sustain, right? It's begun to start to be there, right? You feel that. You feel that. So, you know, if concentration is getting stronger, you know, people talk about this, everybody in the interviews, like, my concentration this, my concentration that. But it's not necessarily what the Buddha's talking about when he's talking about concentration, you know, or jhana. You know, jhana is really an energy quality that you're developing and then refining, and it, you know, it's really a self-sustaining quality. And it's your natural energy flow. You know, we're getting you to your full potential as a human being in terms of uh, the state of the body. So there's less fabrication, awareness is less afflicted, you're in this state that's pleasurable and you're closer to what is the moment. You're closer to the moment, right? You're closer to the breath and the body, closer to the present moment, closer to the heart, closer to the heart. And the third jhana, and furthermore, with the fading of rapture, he remains equanimous, mindful, uh, alert, and senses pleasure with the body. So, and then the, the metaphor is just as a, 
in a blue, white, or red lotus pond, there may be some of the blue, white, or red lotuses which born and growing in the water stay immersed in the water and flourish without standing up out of the water so that they are permeated and pervaded, suffused and filled with cool water from their tips to their roots. And nothing of those blue, white, or red lotuses would be unpervaded with cool water, even so the monk permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with a pleasure divested of rapture. So, uh, so uh, think of the difference between the second and the third jhana, uh, the energy, you know, there's that flow, right? There's that flow from the, you know, the spring of the lake into the lake, you know, there's that movement of the water uh, uh, that becomes so still and so, you know, when the energy is just really refined, I mean, it's, it's there, but it's very still and refined and then you can just, you just really sort of just let that go and there's no movement, there's stillness and there's just pleasure. So, you know, at this stage there really isn't that, you know, because the, you know, the, you know, the energy you know, the ease, the rapture has some dissonance in, in it, right? You know, there's some movement there, but it becomes so still that, uh, you know, really you let go of it. Uh, there's ways of letting go of it. Uh, and uh, so your experience of the body is just like that lotus submerged in the pond. You're just submerged in the pond and you're suffused with pleasure, suffused with pleasure. So, uh, you know, there's, so there's less movement, less obscuration, the energy, the physical energy of the rapture is a little coarse, you know, there's a little dissonance there, so that passes, right? And there's more stillness, there's more stillness. The Buddha says, uh, he remains equanimous, mindful, and alert, and senses pleasure with the body. So, you know, we're equanimous. You know, this is the way it is. You know, it's just like, this is the way it is. I'm just, you know, I'm just soaking, right? I'm right here. I'm just right here. This is like that lotus flower submerged in the pond. And there's this quality uh, that we begin to experience of contentedness contentedness. We're mindful, aware of the breath, and there's pleasure. So we sense pleasure with the body. So our focus is on this quality of pleasure, which is different than the rapture. So pleasure is, is a mental quality. You don't experience it uh, the same way that you experience rapture. Rapture is a physical quality. So uh, to give you an example, if you think of the, those beautiful chocolate chip cookies, uh, you know, when you taste that chocolate chip cookie, you, you taste it, the sense experience is in the mouth, right? But the actual experience of pleasure, you feel somewhere else in the body. You can try this tomorrow with whatever it is. It'll, I'm sure it'll be delicious. So, uh, you know, you taste the food, but you feel pleasure. The experience of pleasure, the mental impression, is something that you sense with the body, but not in the mouth, right? You feel it usually somewhere right here, you know, pleasure. Wow, pleasure. You feel it right here. So it's more refined. It's more refined. There's less noise. It's more silent. Brings us closer to the moment. Closer to the moment. And then in the fourth jhana, 
furthermore, with the abandoning of pleasure, because even the pleasure, there's a little dissonance there, right? There's a little dissonance. Ah, that feels good. There's a little dissonance there. Furthermore, with the abandoning of pleasure, he enters and remains in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness. He sits, permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness, so that there is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. So now there's just awareness. You know, there's just awareness of breath and body. And that's the purest state, just awareness. See, up until then, we've needed the pleasure. We've needed that quality of energy you know, that's brought us into this state. Uh, but there's just pure awareness, just as if a man were sitting wrapped from head to foot with a white cloth so that there would be no part of his body to which the white cloth did not extend. Even so, the monk sits, permeating this body with a pure, bright awareness. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. So this just awareness, just awareness, just breath, just body, just heart, breath, body, heart. This is how we get closer to the heart. So we're moving closer to the heart, right? Well, even the ease and the pleasure, which are our vehicle to get us to the heart, you know, we let go of them. You don't need the vehicle anymore, right? You don't need the vehicle anymore. Now we're here, it's just pure, bright awareness. Breath, body, heart. As concentration develops, awareness converges at the heart. So this is another mark. You want to know if you're in a, a deeper state of concentration, you know, there should be, oh, your awareness should be converging at the heart. More and more, there's a sense of the heart. You're able to sense the heart in all postures. So you probably don't feel it in the meditation so much uh, because the rapture's in the way. You know, and because you're fabricating so much, right? You're fabricating so much. You know, so you don't really, you, you know, I mean, the heart is there, and, you know, and, and you're touching into that a wisdom is that's there. But, you know, you, your awareness isn't so much converging right there because it's caught up in the other stuff that you got to do. But eventually, you know, that's all in the service of you being able to be in tune and in touch and close to the heart, at the heart at the heart. When concentration develops, awareness converges at the heart. Normally awareness is, you know, I mean, when you're developing concentration, you know, your awareness is caught up a lot in the ease and the pleasure and the directed thought and the evaluation. Otherwise, it's all over the body, right? It's caught up, your awareness is all over the place. The pain in the knee, you know, the thought about Fourth of July, thing you don't like, the aversion about this. I mean, our awareness is, you know, just all over the place, right? So we're learning to bring our awareness into the body and align it with uh, the ease and the energy in the body, the pleasure. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we want our awareness to converge right at the heart, right at the heart. So that as we go through our days, our awareness is close to the heart. Close to the heart. So there's just mindfulness, breath, body, equanimity. 
acceptance of things as they are, just the moment itself, the moment itself. In the moment, awareness converges at the heart, at the knowing quality, the place of innate wisdom, this is what we've been talking about, the place of love, compassion. So this moment itself, you know, we're, get, we're, we're coming to the moment in and of itself, you know, this place of equanimity, this pure equanimity. When there's that pure awareness, there's pure equanimity. And there's this quality of all I need is right here. Breath, body, heart. All I need is right here. When you're in the moment, you know, that quality of all I need is right here is right there. It's like right here in this moment. There's breath, body, heart. It's all you need. It's all I need. We have that sense of acceptance and contentedness. The mind is content. Normally the mind is uh, far from content. Far from content. One of the ways that we think about suffering and du- about dukkha uh, and the way that it manifests is, uh, you know, the way that it uh, uh, arrives at our doorstep in the form of the armies of Mara is that state of perpetual dissatisfaction, right? Perpetual dissatisfaction with the way things are. You know, this subtle, ongoing dissatisfaction with things. Not quite wanting things the way that they are. My life my situation, my body, my mind, others, the world, wanting something different, wanting something different. You know, it's so, it, and sometimes it's just so subtle because it's, because it's so consistent and so perpetual. It's kind of like always there, not quite wanting to be here. You know, I always say that was my life story, anywhere but here, you know, on any scale. I don't want to be in this life that I have my life. I don't want to be in my life. I don't want to be in the city I live in. I don't want to be in my apartment. I don't want to be in the room that I'm in. I don't want to be in this moment. You know, it's just that it's, it, it, on any scale, it's right there, this quality of dissatisfaction. In the winter, I want it to be summer. When it's cold, I want it to be hot, right? Today it was cold, you want it to be hot. Tomorrow it'll be hot, you'll want it to be cold. I want the next moment, not this moment. Feeling that something's lacking. Something's lacking. Something's lacking in each moment in my life. Some feeling that something's wrong. Something's wrong, right? Something's wrong. Something's not quite right. It's not quite right. A subtle lack of acceptance with the way things are. And we think the way out of this suffering is to change the way things are. Change my life, I change my job, I change my relationship, I change the day somehow, I can change the moment. But it's not the problem. It's not the problem. The problem is the mind. The mind inclines, the mind's inclination to being dissatisfied with things which of course comes from the mind's inclination to look for happiness in things when things can't bring happiness, true happiness, 
a reliable happiness. Things are inherently unsatisfactory. Somebody said a few days ago on this retreat. And in the moment itself, awareness converges at the heart. The heart understands that if I lean toward what I want, that I think I need, because I don't have what I need, there's pain and suffering. The heart understands that if I lean away from what I don't want, that what I have that I don't want, there's pain, there's suffering. The heart understands that I don't need anything. We don't need anything. Everything we need is right here. I don't need anything that I don't have right now in this moment. We know that when we come to the moment, really come to the moment, when there's just awareness of the moment, breath, body, and heart. Breath, body, and heart. Breath, body, wisdom, love, compassion, joy, peace. Nothing's lacking. Nothing's lacking in the moment. As we develop these qualities of jhana and come into tune, the ability to know the moment develops. We're developing the ability through our concentration practice, our practice of jhana, to know the moment. And we're able to know the moment more and more. And this quality of complete acceptance and beingness, suchness, suchness. You know, the Buddha said, don't call me anything. Call me the Tathagata, one who isn't there. There isn't anybody there. There's just the moment. Breath, body. There's no Buddha. That's just an idea. There's no Ryan or Tina. Those are just, it's just breath, body, and heart. Wisdom, love, compassion, joy. Thirteen bodies, thirteen hearts. Love, wisdom, compassion, joy. Nothing lacking. Nothing lacking. What more do we need? If we try to look for something more, it's just going to cause stress. What could be more joyful than this moment that we're in? Breath, body, and heart. As the practice develops, the moment becomes sanditiko. It's an important word in Pali, readily apparent. More and more, the moment is sanditiko. Because the moment is a, the other word that's very important to, you know, that's useful to, to kind of begin to start to embrace is akaliko, ever-present. The moment is ever-present. The moment is part of the ever-present truth. The moment is always there. The moment is timeless. The moment is timeless. The moment doesn't die. It's not subject to birth and death. There's no forward or backward. There's no coming or going. It just is. It's just isness. It's just isness. Where where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. There the stars don't shine. The sun is invisible. There the moon doesn't appear. The darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin through sagacity, has realized this for herself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, she is freed. The moment is timeless. 
It's the place of happiness, happiness of heart, love, the happiness that doesn't die. It doesn't die. It doesn't die. So our task is to know the moment itself. So, you know, when we get back to our lives, you're going to be kind of busy, you know, and we're probably going to have the moment. Uh, we don't have time for the moment. There's too many things, too many people to see, and things to accomplish, and, you know, internet to look at, you know, the moment, you know. So the retreat's a good place to, you know, it's a, it's a good place to get to know the moment, to come to the moment, to come to the moment. These qualities of jhana that we're developing uh, are conditions that enable us to tune into the moment. We're learning to be in tune, right? We're learning to be in tune. Concentration is more a matter of wisdom and attitude and being in tune and being in tune. Being in tune. That's why that talk on effort you know, Sona, he was out of tune. He was meditating his butt off. But he didn't have the Buddha's concentration. He wasn't in tune. He had a certain kind of concentration. It's all kinds of concentration. You know, the concentration we want is in concentration when you're in tune and you're able to be in tune with the heart. In tune with the heart. So these occasions, so we want in life, but you know, retreats a, a you know a blessed occasion, a blessed time in which we can, uh, uh, you know, it's like it's one of these things. You know, it's like you can't try to get to the moment because then the trying takes you out of the moment. So we want to, you know, we're in rhythm and we want to be sensitive to the moment and know the moment. But those occasions when you're able to drop in or tune in, it's unpredictable. Tanisa Rubiku says it's like chaos theory. It's like chaos theory. You know, uh, our tuning into the moment and when that happens uh, is random and unpredictable. You know, I talked about one of my teachers, my beloved teacher, Eugene Cash, one of the Dharma talks that he used to like to give. Now and again, it was called the mystery of awakening. It's kind of a mystery. When am I going to tune in to the moment? Could be in the sitting. Could be in the walking. Could be in the, the dining hall. That was his talk. Could be in the dining hall while you're, while you're leaning over the steamed broccoli. Yeah, that you tune into the moment. These occasions when we tune in, it's unpredictable when that'll happen, right? They're random. You know? The Dhamma, you know, it's it's a complex nonlinear system. It's an unpredictable system. And if we want to use sort of the terminologies of chaos theory, it's an unpredictable nonlinear system, but there are patterns of unpredictability. And the unpredictability has patterns. So in becoming in tune in tune uh, with the Dhamma, with the heart, we become sensitive through meditation, uh, through our practice, the way I described being in tune to these patterns, these rhythms, these rhythms, you know, our innate wisdom uh, uh, enables us to be able to tune in uh, and, 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 and to tune to these patterns, tune to these patterns. These rhythms, it's like when I, when I was a kid, 
you know, I had like a little radio that I built, you know, and I was, you know, I was, like, I was supposed to be in bed, but I'd be in my room, you know, and I was, you know, I'm in Long Island, you know, like, can I tune into these radios to Cleveland? I got Cleveland tonight, you know, you're just, you're just, oh, can I get it? Oh, I'm, it's, uh, oh, there it is, Cleveland, I got Cleveland. I got Cleveland. You know, maybe I can get Philadelphia, or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So it's like we're learning, just like that kid, you know, learning to tune in, tune in, tune in. You know, the patterns are universal, right? The patterns are universal. So, you know, we're tuning in in the breath meditation in step two. You know, we're tuning in, we're learning to tune in to these patterns, the flow of life, the flow of the Dhamma, the rhythm of the Dhamma. We're learning to connect to that in the walking meditation as we find our rhythm. You know, we're learning to be in tune with that rhythm. That's what we're doing. I say, oh, be graceful. Why? Because, you know, auditioning for, you know, ABT? You know, it's, it's like, we're, you know, we're, 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 we want to be in tune. We want to be in tune so that we can connect to those moments so that we can know the moment itself, so that we can know the moment itself more and more and more. You know, so, uh, you know, these patterns uh, uh, are, uh, you know, the same, you know, in any day, you know, on any, you know, it's that idea of scale, you know, so in any day the pattern is the same, is the same, you know, the rhythm of Dhamma is the same in any day, uh, in any period of walking, uh, in, any, in any movement of the breath from the in-breath to the out-breath. Like in this moment right now, it's the same rhythm, right? It's the same rhythm that you're connecting to in your meditation and your walking and when you find yourself in tune in the dining room. You see, so we're just getting in tune, getting in tune with the Dhamma so that we can connect more and more. You know, so we're, when we're in tune, you know, we're more uh, able to, you know, and of course, you know, you know, so there's that ultimate, you know, again, it's not first jhana, second jhana, but, you know, we're in tune, we're in flow, there's that quality to some extent of equanimity, of acceptance of the way things are, we're not leaning into experience, there's some acceptance of the way things are, and there's awareness. You know, there's an awareness that's pure, you know, and we're tied into our intuitive wisdom and the moment and we connect into the truth. We connect into that isness, the moment that's pure. Like Alan Watts called the marvelous moment. The marvelous moment. So this understanding, you know, is in the body, in the felt sense and in our rhythm being in tune and in rhythm, being in tune with the heart, the goodness in the fabric of life, in our life, in the day, in the moment. The great chaos physicist Mitchell Feigenbaum said, somehow the wondrous promise of the earth is that there are things beautiful in it things wondrous and alluring, and by virtue of your trade, you want to understand them. We could say our trade is the Dhamma student. 
And this is what art is trying to understand and express, right? To express the inarticulate. You know, to find that rhythm that's inherent in the truth of the fabric of things the way they are, that spiritual uh, truth, and somehow express that in art. Joyce said, James Joyce said, art is rhythm. It's rhythm. He was trying to capture that. He was trying to capture that you know, in his writing. All artists are trying to capture that, and it's all, you know, it's all connected. It's all connected. That's why art resonates with us, because it's connected. It's connected. So we're finding our rhythm. We're finding our rhythm. You know, when we're in tune, we're able to touch into the moment. So in the walking meditation, we find our rhythm. You know, and there may be moments when you're able just to touch into the moment. Maybe you stop and you pause. And it's just like, sometimes I'll just make the note this moment. You know, or going for a walk. You know, going for a walk. You know, sometimes that's the deepest meditation on a retreat, just like Eugene said. Sometimes, you know, you touch into those resonance points in the sitting, the walking. Sitting, usually not, because you're doing so much to develop those qualities and you're probably trying a little too hard. That's why you have to be careful in that sitting, that meditation, trying a little too hard. Talked about this a lot I'm with, with a lot of people today in the interviews. Trying a little too hard cuts you off from the heart. You get out of rhythm. You know, we think trying too hard, I'm going to get more breaths, I'm going to get more concentration. That's not how it works, right? We're trying to get in rhythm. It's not a function of how many breaths that you get. It's not a function of how many breaths you get. It's more a function of how you get the breaths that you get. Somebody write that down. I just, it just, uh, <laughs> just occurred to me. <laughs> so you go for a walk, you know, and the walk is good because, you know, you've developed this concentration. You've found a, a rhythm. You know, you've worked your butt off in the sitting, you know, in the walking meditation to find a rhythm, and then you get out, you know, you go for a walk along the road, and the mind is bright, you know, and you're not trying so hard, and then there's just those moments, right, when you're not trying so hard. And you just touch in to the moment. So, you know, know the moment, right? It's a hard assignment to give. Know the moment four times. Write down eight times when you know when you know it tomorrow. But you want to begin to incline to knowing the moment, to come to the moment. So our practice is to be in tune, to be in rhythm, to be in the heart, to be in the moment. A little bit of an aside practice here. Uh, you know, going back to my uh, little uh, dissertation there on perpetual dissatisfaction, which is sort of the antithesis of the moment, right? You know, because in the moment, there's just equanimity, right? That's that fourth jhana quality, equanimity, acceptance of the way things are. Everything is the way it is. There's a contentedness with this moment. There's a, just a quality of beautiful contentedness with this moment. We've talked about this a lot in a lot of the meetings, too. Uh, I, you know, a good practice that I do a lot is very proactively cultivating acceptance. So it's sort of, you know, kind of very simply saying every now and again, can I accept this moment? Can I bring acceptance this moment? And, and invariably when I do that, I usually notice there's some dissatisfaction with the moment. You know, but I didn't notice that before. So you sort of like have to, it's one of these things you have to be a little proactive about. 
about accepting the moment, about accepting, like right now, can you accept this moment? The heart accepts it completely. The heart heart accepts it completely. Because the heart inclines you to what's in your best interests, to being in this moment with acceptance and being in tune with the Dhamma. So just practicing, can I accept this moment? Can I accept this moment? It's a little bit easier. The other way you could do it is, can I notice the dissatisfaction in this moment? You know? It's a little more arduous because it's like it's you know it's a never-ending job, perpetual dissatisfaction. You know? So our practice is coming to the moment when there's an opening, like the Buddha said, but knowing those mom- openings. I love that phrase of the Buddha, is when there's an opening. You know, but when we're in rhythm, we understand the patterns uh, of life, of Dhamma, and we're sensitive to the openings. You know, coming to the moment, there's just breath, body, heart. Notice how when you come to the moment, notice this. Know the moment. Get to know what's the moment. Get to know the moment. The moment. The moment itself. And when you come to the moment, awareness converges at the heart. You know, sometimes we do that in class, right? And I, or I do that on retreat. You know, I say, just come to the moment right now. You know, and it's like, you know, and there's, there's that quality of peace and acceptance. But, you know, you know, it's a transcendent experience because you're in the heart, right? In the moment, your awareness converges at the heart. So the reason why that's like, wow, that was pretty cool, is because your awareness is converging at the heart. That's what makes it cool. You know, the heart is cool. The heart is cool. So learn to be in rhythm, learn to incline to the moment in all postures. Know these moments when you're free, free from the limitations of time, free from the limitations of birth and death, from wanting, from dissatisfaction, from dukkha, the moment itself. So let's just close our eyes for a minute.